This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. a new series uh, this uh, term and we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. Now for those of you who know Romans you'll know it is a big book with lots of stuff in it. We are going to try and give you the best bits uh, but we do want to make sure that we read the whole book uh, because scripture is powerful in and of itself and it's important for us to read it. So I'm going to, so the host each week will read and then the person preaching will preach off uh, the, the sort of try and get the main meat out for you. So we're starting Romans 1, so if you've got a Bible, feel free to turn to it. If not, it's coming up on the screen behind me, I believe. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who according to the flesh was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to uh, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Now that serves me a job, doesn't it? Good to see you. Um, my name's Howard, if I've not spoken to you. And uh, it's good to be back. 
Um, I'm, bit no, I'm biting off more than I could chew this morning, but you think, well, that's no change there, is it? So, you know, settle in for a long one, get yourself comfy, because uh, what we're going to do is try and do two jobs this morning. We're going to try and give you the background of this letter, and then we're going to try and do some meat out of the letter, uh, and I've worked very hard. I, I have left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor uh, for you, but I don't know if you've, um, what, you, what you do with letters. I, I don't know what, when was the last time you had a handwritten letter. Uh, you get letters from the bank, don't you? You know those ones that say you're, you're one pound overdrawn and we're charging you 50 pound for the letter. You get those kind of letters. And you get, I had a letter from the police recently saying, thank you for driving in a bus lane, which blessed me deeply. Uh, and you, you, know, you get those kind of letters. Uh, or you get letters saying you've been accepted for your university place or your hip operation is, is in progress. But they're always typed and you know, they're never really very personal. Uh, and to be honest, I don't think I've hardly written a personal letter. And my mum used to make me write those thank you letters. Uh, but now it's easy now. You send your parents a, a text or send whoever a text, thank you for that, grandma, or whatever. Um, I remember a girl, though, before I was married, used to write me long letters. Uh, I'm not bragging at all. Uh, in fact, I'm quite ashamed of the incident. I, I think she was called Beverly. The fact I can't even remember her name is worrying. <laughs> but she wrote me these letters. They were eight or nine pages of letters. And... Um, and and I just used to read the first paragraph and think, oh, I just can't be bothered with this. <laughs> uh, cheesy link, cheesy link. We are like that with the letter of Romans. Everybody knows it's a very significant letter. Everybody knows it's like a letter that you should read. But like you basically think, oh man, I, yeah, it's a bit long, isn't it? In fact, it's the oldest uh, letter, surviving letter we have from, from, from the ancient world. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, it's kind of this historical document, but we've never really dug into it. Uh, we never really read it. I don't know if anybody's read it all the way through. If you're doing the Bible in the year, you've probably gone through it. Uh, you tend to, if you're preaching on it, you tend to get to chapter eight and think, oh, that's it, we're exhausted. You don't do the last uh, eight chapters. But how are you going to read that letter? I think there's one way you could do it. You could say, well, we're going to cherry pick. We're going to uh, take, take bits of the uh, letter that we like. Uh, the bits that make us feel good, the bits that we enjoy, the bits that don't challenge us, and we'll do that. And I think we can do that with the Bible. You can take little bits that you like and say, well, I really like that, I'm doing my Bible justice. You can do it that one way, and I don't think that's the best way to do it. Or you can do uh, the absolute kind of other way where you start off uh, what, like a, a preacher called Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones who's preached for 366 consecutive Sundays on this letter, and he starts off Paul, and then he does a whole week on Paul. A slave, he does a whole week on a slave, an apostle, unlike that. I mean, his books are fabulous, incredibly dense, and you can, de- you can go as deep uh, and as with this letter, but thankfully we're going to do 17 weeks. So we've allowed ourselves basically a chapter a week, we have not quite divided it up like that, uh, but we've got 17 weeks and we're going to kind of dig into that. Now, also when you think about the letter of Romans, you might think, uh, it's, it's probably good that Brian's away this week. Uh, you might think, oh, it's an academic exercise for theologians. You know, theologians love to write books. I can get this books. I've got one book on my shelf that's about that, that thick uh, uh, by a guy called Douglas Moo on Romans. And you can get multiple books that thick, and it's academic, and, but very interesting. But it's like one academic to another. And you think, well, this isn't relevant for me. Or you can think, oh, it's some, you know, I really like a, a heavy Bible study. You know, and we can get deep into it and we can dig into it just for the sake of studying it. Now, I don't think it was written, it was, certainly wasn't written from one university professor to another. Paul's a, a tent maker, he's not a university professor. He's a bright guy, but he's, he's, uh, he's writing a letter. And he's not writing uh, to uh, you so that it can't be understood or you can't think, well, I don't know what he's talking about. 
well, this is very complicated. He's, he's writing it to kind of people that lived in Rome at street level, people like you and I. Now, some of you are very clever, I know, and some of you are not so clever. Uh, and, but basically, the, the, when the letter was read out, people would have got what he was talking about. Now, it might be subtle hints and nuances that they didn't pick up, but they generally would have got the idea. Now, our challenge, however, is that we don't really live in Rome in AD 57. So what I'm going to do is going to give you a little run-through of what it's like, what Rome is like in AD 57 when the letter's written, so that when we go through the letter, you can think, oh yeah, I remember that, oh, I remember that, oh, I remember that's going on. So we'll do that first, and then we'll kind of try and dive into the first uh, little bit of the letter. So let me just pray, and then we'll go to work. Father, we pray as we dig in this big letter of Romans. I pray that we wouldn't get bored after the first paragraph. I pray that we wouldn't feel, well, it's just some academic exercise to increase my knowledge. Lord, I thank you that this is a letter about the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, how he changes lives, changes cities, changes the world. Lord, I thank you that this is uh, something that Paul writes down, that, as as Abby said, that you had planned from the beginning, Lord, and that Paul uh, draws it out for us. And I pray as he he draws it out that it wouldn't be uh, something that we're just assessing, well, how did quite well, or... But I pray that you'd, you'd, you'd draw it into our lives, that you'd knit it into our thinking, our understanding, that we'd be transformed by our minds so that we can live for you. Lord, I pray that we'd understand the power of this truth. Lord, in a world that seems not interested in Jesus, Lord, I pray that this letter would be an injection of faith into the power of the gospel for us as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Port, uh, Rome in AD 57 was the largest city in the world. Uh, yes, so that's not Rome, actually, an area photograph, because obviously they didn't have drones uh, taking photos in those days. But that's kind of like a model. Uh, you can see on, on, on your right, you can see the Colosseum, and then running down from that up to the top, there's the Forum. This bit down here is called the Hippodrome, and then you can see a theatre down by the River Tiber. Big houses on the top between the Hippodrome and Col- uh, the Colosseum, if you've been, is called what's called the Palatine Hill, which is where the emperors uh, lived. And, and Romans, Rome was a huge city. It's about a million people. Uh, and, 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 it was, and it was the largest city that had been in the world until about 17 centuries later when Rome overtook it. Uh, sorry, when, when London overtook it. And both Rome and London uh, were at the centre of vast empires. And as in most cities today, uh, uh, probably even more so in Rome, it was economically and socially diverse. Uh, it, it was, uh, it was, there were lots of inequality. So the, the little picture that we had shows the kind of social hierarchy in Rome. So at the top of the... Um, uh, at the top of the hierarchy were the imperial family. Obviously, we don't have an imperial family, but we do have a royal family. I was reading today uh, that a thousand people in England uh, own all of the land. We, we still have a, a, an inequality system. We do have democracy. They had a bit of democracy to start with, and then they started to have emperors. So at the top, they'd have the, the imperial family, uh, and they would uh, build large grand buildings like the Colosseum, they'd build arches to their victories like the Titus Arch, which is next to the Colosseum, which is actually about the defeat of the Jews uh, in uh, uh, 69 BC. And so they build these arches and stuff in this kind of grand city. Beneath them uh, were uh, the, what, what's called the patricians, uh, which basically means the fathers. Uh, and these fathers uh, were the, kind of had huge power in their own families. Uh, they had power to... Uh, uh, divorce their wives, they had power to take many wives, they had power to kill their slaves, they had power uh, to do whatever they want, uh, and this kind of elite group 
provided what was the senators at that time. Uh, and they lived on the hills. Uh, Rome is run, there's a river that runs through Rome called the Tiber. That floods, or it used to flood, uh, over the banks. And so the bottoms below the hills was quite swampy, uh, mosquitoes, uh, not very nice to live. That's where the poor people lived, but the rich people lived on the hills. And in fact, if you go around Britain today, you can still find rich people tend to live on hills. Go up Battle Down if you want a little example. And so um, the, the, you had these, uh, these patricians, uh, wealthy landowners, big farmers, they would have estates uh, right through the Roman Empire. And then you came to most of us, uh, the plebs, uh, the plebeians it's called. Uh, the plebeians, uh, the plebs, those are the ones who are free Roman citizens, who are kind of what I think politicians called hard-working families. Uh, they, they were paying their taxes, they were running businesses, so they would run taverns or they'd make tents like Paul, or they're, they're, trying, to make a, they're trying to make a living. Uh, and uh, some of those uh, would have been ex-slaves who'd been freed, and some of those would have been uh, Roman citizens. In other words, they had extra rights, and they could vote in the elections and stuff like that. And we find out later that Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh, so he's one of those plebs. Um, and it's interesting, the Roman Empire, I think there's a map of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, by the time of uh, AD 57, was covered the most of the Mediterranean basin. Uh, and it sounds a bit like the EU, actually, the free movement of people, uh, there was goods and services and ideas could run along these Roman roads, uh, that, that it was a safer time to travel in the first century than at any time until kind of almost the present day, uh, because the Roman uh, legions kept what's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, so people could travel. You could travel from, from Jerusalem right on the uh, far uh, east of the Mediterranean, you could travel through Rome and right over to Spain and into Britain. Uh, so you had this kind of area where ideas could travel. Interesting that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, kind of comes in at this time when it can travel fast. If it had come 200 years later, city-states, travel, difficult travel, the gospel would have t- struggled to travel. But actually it travels. Paul's freely traveling. He's, he's, he's at the time, he's in Corinth, which is in, uh, in Greece, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem, and then he's intending to head to uh, Rome and then on to Spain. So he's traveling uh, around the Roman Empire. The, the, because of this, you've got movements of people, and because you get movements of people, you get economic migrants. Uh, you go, uh, it's not quite the migrant crisis where people are traveling from now, what is down the bottom in Africa, across into Italy. But you've got, an econo- you've got economic migrants. Rome was where the money was. Rome was where the influence was. Rome we could make a fortune. So people would move uh, to Rome. So Rome was this kind of attractional city, it, this kind of melting port, hotbed. The people that were from the Roman Empire uh, were, were, uh, were kind of sometimes called, uh, were called Greeks or uh, Romans or... Uh, part of the empire, and the people on the white bit outside, they were called the barbarians, uh, which basically kind of means the, the, the outsiders. They were the kind of migrants, and so you'd have this kind of mix of people. You'd have mostly people from the empire, but you'd have people from the outside. Uh, Rome's wealth in the 80s uh, was built on slaves, a bit like British Empire built on slaves in the 18th century. Rome uh, was built on slaves, so 50% of the population of Rome were slaves, that's a huge number. You think 500,000, and you know, it's five Cheltenhams of slaves. So the rich lived on the back of slaves. Uh, uh, whereas, our, whereas the British Empire kept our slaves at a nice distance in the Americas and the Caribbeans, and it wasn't very embarrassing for us, but we built nice houses in Bristol and London and Liverpool and places like that. Uh, the, 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 kept, the Romans kept their slaves kind of around and about. So there's 500,000 slaves in the city. And they kept them down by a mix of 
power and conquest. When, the, when places were conquered, they'd bring in a whole load more slaves. So some of those people that are living in Rome would have been migrants from Israel, Jews who'd have come and set up businesses. Some of them might have been slaves who'd been dragged there uh, against their will. And in fact, the slave labor at the time uh, was so abundant that 200,000, uh, at one time, 200,000 of the Roman citizens, the plebs, were, were unemployed. Because why pay a pleb to do your work when you can have a slave who does it for free? And 200,000 of those, and actually it's interesting that the, the plebs oft would live on state benefits. The plebs who were Roman citizens were given uh, state benefits. And if you watch the film Gladiator, they talk about the mob, don't they? The mob, all they want is bread and games. So they'd kind of have these games in the Colosseum to keep them happy. Sky Sports is equivalent. And uh, they'd have bread, the equivalent of working tax credit or whatever it is. But there was the same sort of inequalities. Those that are rich, those that are very poor, and those that are in the squeezed middle. So what was the, what was the church like in Rome in AD 57? Um, it wasn't a big building. You don't, if you go to Rome now, you can go to massive church buildings. You go to St. Peter's or you can go to these other church buildings. There were no church buildings. It was basically people who'd been, uh, were Jews who'd been in Palestine, been in Israel uh, at the time of Jesus. So they'd either heard Jesus preach at some time or maybe they were in the, in, in Jerusalem at the time of, of what we call our Easter, first Easter, where Jesus was uh, cru- uh, crucified and they would have heard stories of his resurrection. Um, they may have been there on the, the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Jesus uh, died and uh, rose again, uh, when the Spirit was up, outpoured and they might have heard Peter speak. And in fact, it mentions in Acts that there were people from all over the Roman Empire uh, at their, there at the time. And what happens is they went home. They went back to Rome. Maybe they moved as migrants to Rome. They went back to Rome and they started to talk about Jesus. And I think it's interesting that um, the Catholics, uh, sorry if you're a Catholic here, I'm not intending to have a dig, but the Catholics would say that Peter founded the church in Rome, but he didn't. He was never there. He was, certainly wasn't there at the time. The church in Rome was founded by ordinary punters like us. People who'd heard about Jesus, people who'd experienced the life-changing power of Jesus, and who started to talk about to their friends. Then most of them would first be Jewish, so they talked to their Jewish friends. So you had this uh, situation of uh, of Jews and Jewish Christians, and they um, they they would meet in synagogues. So it took 12 men to have a synagogue. So they'd meet in synagogues. So some of them would meet in homes, a bit like our small groups. Some of them would meet in uh, synagogues, purpose-built buildings. Mostly they'd be in the small kind of poor houses along the side of the Tiber. Okay. It's interesting, I think, that, that we can think now that, um, that the, the good news of Jesus or the message of Jesus is quite powerless, that it doesn't really make a difference. I think the start of the church in Rome is really interesting because it shows us that people who've, who've experienced the power of Jesus, it changes lives. It's almost like it was an infectious thing. So the Jews who became Christians would, would sort of talk to the Jews who weren't Christians and some of them had become Christians. Uh, the Jews who become Christians would talk to some of the people that lived around them. Maybe the plebs they went and got their tents from or got their food from or maybe the slaves they had in the house and they talked to them and some of them had become Christians. And it's like this kind of infectious thing. It wasn't like you'd, you, you'd started like a church, got a nice building like this and, and gathered, gathered Christians. You know, it's nice to do that, and if you've joined us in your Christian, it's great to have you. But really what was happening is that this good news of Jesus was, like this, in, was this infectious uh, thing that kind of went from person to person. Uh, you know, it's contagious. People caught it. People lived a life so radically and so different that people caught it. And that's how the church in uh, Rome started. But actually, it created a bit of tension. So if you've got the first slide with the two circles, it created a bit of tension. 
So the first bit of tension we get in the background is in AD 49, Claudius is the emperor, and you've got Jews, a large number of Jews who, were, who believed in who were Judaism, who kept the law, who would be circumcised, who would not eat, you know, keep kosher food, keep those laws, uh, not mix with the wrong people. They'd keep all those laws, and you'd have those Jews, and some of those Jews became Christians, and some of those uh, and some of those Jews, some of those Jews Christians helped what's called Gentiles or non non Jews to become Christians. So you've got this tension between the kind of large number of Jews and the Christians. So the small circle, the Christians, large circle, the Jews who weren't followers of Jesus. And the big discussion or the big row at that time was, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the one that we've been looking for? And in fact, um, it was so, such a violent kind of disagreement that, that they'd have riots in the street. I mean, we can't imagine that now, can we? We have riots about other things. Um, you know, but it's a bit, and I, I, it, it might scare you, but it's a bit like how in, in sometimes of kind of radical Islam now, they have riots in the streets between kind of Sunnis and, and Shiites. Well, here you've got riots between two types of Jews. You've got the Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the majority, and you've got the Jews who do, do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And it just spilled down to the streets. They were arguing, fighting, writing. In fact, uh, Claudius, he was, his life was written about by a guy called uh, Sutanus, historian, and he writes that the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome as they were constantly rioting at the um, instigation of Christus. So that's Jesus, basically. They put an E instead of the I. You obviously didn't know how to spell it. So they're rioting. And so what happened is the Jews, a large number of the ones that were rioting on both sides, the Jews who believed in Jesus and the Jews who didn't believe us, were all kicked out of Rome. So they left Rome. And we find, actually, one of the leading families... Is called Aquila and Priscilla. And you hear about them elsewhere in the Bible. And they lived in Rome, and they, were, I don't, they must have been on the Christian side of the argument saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're obviously some sort of row. They had a big, uh, uh, they probably had uh, wealthy because it's at the time. And they were kicked out to Corinth. Guess who they meet in Corinth? They meet this guy called Paul. They're tent makers. He's a tent maker, and they must get talking. And he must say, Well, why are you doing here? What are you doing here? Well, I've had to move. You know, so some of you have had to move into town. You get talking, why did you move, whatever. Well, we, got mo- we had to move. There's this big argument in Rome between, is Jesus a Messiah or isn't he? Obviously, Paul believes that Jesus is a Messiah, so he becomes friends with them. And I think he must have filled them in with all the info, because Paul's never been. He gives them all the info, all the tensions uh, that are in that church. So he talks about the tensions, I think I've listed them actually, the tensions between um, Jews and Gentiles. The tensions between Greek uh, Romans who had status, Greeks who had education, and immigrant outsiders. The tensions between those who are free and those who are slaves. And in fact, here's a, a, a picture of modern-day tensions. Does anyone know who this is by? Don't believe the placards. It's, it's been ironic. It's Banksy. And uh, what's he saying? There's pigeons on the left saying, "Migrants not welcome. Go back to Africa. Keep off our worms." And who's on the right? Who's on the right? A very pretty migrant, a swallow, migratory swallow. And he's saying it has always happened. Migration has always happened. But we get these tensions today. We get these tensions in Europe between rich and poor. We get these tensions between migrants and non-migrants. We get these tensions. Uh, but also you've got these religious tensions. So what happens is uh, Aquila and Priscilla are kicked out of Rome. They meet Paul. And then gradually, when Claudius dies, they start to come back. And what they find is that the church in Rome is a very different place. So let's imagine that, that, that the Jews had started the church, maybe, the, I don't know how big the church was, probably the maximum was probably a thousand, it's a bit like you know, Trinity size. Um, imagine the people that, that started that church had to leave, 
And then that church, instead of being predominantly a Jewish church, started to become a predominantly non-Jewish church, a Gentile church. And then the Jews come back, and they find that their jobs and their roles have been taken over. And you get that in churches. You get that in, you'll get that in, in our church. If you were here at the beginning, who was here in the very first Sunday? So not many of you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight of us in the very first Sunday. And what we'll find is new people come, they take leadership, and that adds tension to it. So you've not only got this tension between Jews and Gentiles anyway, uh, you've got this tension now between, well, they've taken our, uh, our position, you know, they've taken our leading roles in the church. And so what happens is you've got another row. So this is a second row that breaks out. It's now between the, between the Christians, not between the Jews and the Christians, between the Christians, so the circle on the right. And what happens is the Gentile Christians, there's more of them, and the Jewish Christians who come back, and they're having a big discussion about what you should do. How do you live? Should you become? And I've put it, I think, on the next slide, basically the two sides of the argument. So one side said you should follow the Jews or believe that Jesus was a part, following Jesus was a part of being Jewish, that the Jewish law of Moses and the Torah still applied that non-Jews who would become followers of Jesus had to keep the Torah, particularly rules about circumcision and food, and had to do that. And that's how you became the people of God. You, you want to become a, a follower of Jesus, you've got to become a Jew. And they're having one row, and on the other side of it, you've got some Jews and Gentile converts who believe that Jesus had perfectly fulfilled the Jewish law. So it didn't apply to them. So you didn't have to be circumcised, you didn't have to do kosher, and you didn't have to do those rules, and you belonged to the people of God by faith. And you think, why is he telling us all this? Because when you go through Rome, that's through the book all the way. That little tension between Jews and non-Jews, between uh, Greeks and Romans and slaves, that, but, but that tension between, should we do, are we following the Jewish rules, you know, should we do sacrifices, should we be circumcised, or no, are we, has Jesus done it and we, we belong by faith? That's all the way through. And obviously it's got added heat to that because actually the people that probably believe that Jesus was part of Judaism were kicked out and when they came back it's a kind of different church who believe, no, you don't have to do any of those rules. Imagine we had a certain way of doing church and then you went away and then you came back and you found a totally different way of doing church. And you used to be in charge and now you're on the edge. Lots of emotional uh, tension about that. And actually Paul is not ideally placed to cope with this tension. Uh, I think I've written... That, that, nobody knows what Paul looks like. People suggest he was bald, so that's, I feel good about that. And, and he had bandy legs. Um, I'm a little bit bow-legged, so I'm holding that. He's also quite small. He, he describes himself as very uninspiring in terms of to look at, nothing much to look at. But he was perfectly placed to kind of write this letter because actually he, he started off being a Jew. I mean, he was a Jew, he was born a Jew. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he's fulfilling the, fulfilling the Jewish rules and Jewish law. Um, he became a part of a group called the Pharisees, which Pharisees literally means set apart for the law. So he was like, really, I am keeping the law. Uh, as we know, he hated Christians. So he's on the, uh, on the big side of the first argument, saying, Christians, we need to hate them. You know, he'd be the one causing riots in the street if he'd have been in Rome. But he was doing it elsewhere. He's persecuting Christians, killing Christians. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the one who's promised. You know, don't believe in him, killing them. And then obviously the story, if you read the story in Acts, he sees... Um, a bright light from heaven. Jesus speaks to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, what, I mean, how do you mean me? How do you persecute me? He says, you, you persecute my people. And he falls from the floor and he's blinded for a while. And then a guy called Ananias comes and speaks to him and tells him about Jesus and he's baptized and his eyes get opened. And then suddenly he flips. 
He's telling on the other side of the argument. He, he's, uh, he's going around telling uh, people that aren't Jews, you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to be circumcised, you can follow Jesus uh, and be free. And, and so suddenly the Jews hate him. And um, so he's uh, an, an interesting thing just added into this. He's also a Roman citizen. So he's got all the package. It seems like he's, and so we heard in our reading that he wants to go to Rome. He's been wanting to go there. He's probably thinking, I'm ideally suited to go to Rome to talk, sort all this mess out. Talk to this church, put them on the right line, stop all the arguments, put them on the right lines. And that's what he tries to do. And even if you look closely, he does that all the way through. Even in the first, um, first chapter, he, he talks about, he affirms kind of the Jewishness of Jesus. So it says here, the, uh, I'll read it, Paul, a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel be promised through beforehand through his prophets, obviously the Jewish prophets, in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who according to the flesh was a descendant of David. So right away, he's kind of saying to his Jewish listeners, look, he, you know, I, this is a Jewish religion. He's a descendant of David. You know, he's, he's one that the Old Testament's prophesied about. But he's also annoying uh, some of those in saying he's the Messiah. So he's right in there at the beginning, kind of addressing this tension. Uh, and also, he's, he's, what happens as you start to go on, uh, these, these groups, these two groups became like finger pointers. They started to, to point the finger at each other, and, and the ones that kept the law would point the finger at the other ones and say, you're weak in law, why don't you keep the law? I mean, you ask some churches like that, why do you do this, why do you do that, why do you do the other? I was with some friends the other day, and they said they met some people, and they said they were very churchy. And what they meant was, we're not very churchy. And I think, well, well, maybe we are. But what they meant is that there was this kind of legalistic, you have to do this, you have to do this, you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to behave a certain way, you've got to keep the rules as part of being a Christian. Uh, and, and then you say, well, no, actually, you know, another group would say, no, you don't keep the rules. So, that you, so you, might, uh, you might drink. So I was at a barber, a, a steak night, and um, a guy was, he's here this morning, but I was thinking, well, I, put, I bet he doesn't drink. And I hope he doesn't mind me drinking. I hope he doesn't point the finger at me and say, well, I'm weak because I have a beer. And I don't, hope I don't point the finger at him and say, well, you're weak because you don't understand the gospel that you can, you can do. As long as you love God, you can do what you want. And that happens in churches. So you get this kind of finger pointing and all through the, the letters. Sorry, what's that? Is that the that's not the gospel. That's just kind of rules around it. But you get this finger pointing about who, are you weak or are you strong? And so right through Paul's letter, you get this, now you're the weak ones because you don't keep the Jewish rules. No, you're the weak ones because you don't truly believe in Christ. No, we're the strong ones. And you've got this kind of finger-pointing thing. And Paul gets to that straight away and said, look, guys, just stop it off. It says in uh, Romans uh, eleven twelve, he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that we might be mutually encouraged. It's not mine. I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to say, yes, Paul. We're going to be encouraged. We're going to listen to each other's point of view. We're going to get the strength out of each other's point of view, and then we're going to be mutually encouraging. What's what he tries to do in the letter? So Paul kind of, Paul dives straight in in his letter. So the very first thing he says is, Paul, you might have in your version a, sl- a servant. Actually, that word means is a doulos, which means a bonded servant, a slave. Paul's immediately saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. What's happening to his audience? Half of the people thinking, yes, they despise us. We're rejected and ignored, but we're stuck at the back of this church. And uh, he says, look, I'm a slave. I'm a slave like you. I'm on the edge like you. 
I'm not from around here, in that sense. I'm, uh, and, and all the Romans, and the Romans and the educated Greeks would have gone, oh my word, we just knew Paul's a nightmare. We just knew we didn't want him. Here he is straight away, subversively saying he's a slave. And, and, he, and he does that. And, and he could have started his letter by saying, uh, Paul, uh, sent by Christ Jesus to everyone in Rome. That was a, the normal way to write a letter. You know, we write, dear, dear Beverly, although I never wrote to her. Uh, dear Beverly, and then you put at the bottom yours, yours anonymously, <laughs> yours bored, or whatever you write at the bottom. That's how we do our convention top and tail, isn't it? The way they did is they would write who they were and who they're writing to. So if you read the letters in the New Testament that are Paul uh, to all those in Ephesians, or Paul to everyone in Corinth. And he, do, but he doesn't do that kind of tooth-stoke thing. He does this Bigger thing, so he says he's a slave, and he says he's an apostle sent by Christ, but then he also adds a whole load more in. And one of the things he says is that he's a, an apostle of um, the gospel, that he's a sent one. Um, so you've got this idea that he's a slave, but he's also one sent by God. He's a herald sent by God. And you've got those two things. One is very humble, one is very great. And he talks about being a slave, and he, doesn't, and he's, he, he says, I'm obedient because of faith. Most slaves are obedient because they get smacked around, they get, they get the lash or they'd get some fear or they'd be, they'd be killed. Slaves obeyed, out of, uh, slaves obeyed out of fear. He talks later in his letter, we're not slaves to fear. It's, but he says, I'm a slave to Christ. He's obedient because of his faith. He does what Jesus asks willingly, be, not because it's against his will, but because he's, he's caught something of who Jesus is. He says later on, You're, everybody's a slave of somebody. It says in chapter 6, we'll find that everybody's a slave of somebody. Now, we like to think, don't we, in, in, in our culture, that we're nobody's slaves. If you said that you were a slave, you would no one to put their hand up here. But Paul says, no, you're all a slave of someone. He says, you're either a slave of sin, slave of your own desires, slave of your own passions and addictions, you're disobedient to Jesus, you're a slave to, un, to sin, or he says, you're a slave of Jesus, you're a slave of righteousness. There's no middle ground, and it's not as if we're in the middle ground and we get to choose. You're one or the other. You're either obedient because you trust Jesus, or you're disobedient because you don't. So the interesting thing is, when you sin, I don't know if, you, uh, if you'd use that word, but basically when you do disobey what God says, um, and they're not about rules and rituals and food and stuff, we're saying it's not about that, but when you disobey what, at the heart of what God is, uh, actually you do that because you don't believe. When you, uh, when you go look at porn, you, you're saying, I don't believe that Jesus is really God. I don't believe that. When you, when you fiddle your tax returns, you, you, or, or you're funny with your money, or you trust your credit card more than God, you're saying, well, I don't, I don't believe that, that God's really in charge. I don't believe God's really God. When you disobey, it's the disobedience that comes from unbelief. And Paul say, no, 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 I'm, I'm obedient, not because I'm master, not because he forces me. I'm, I'm obedient, I live like this because I see something different. And he calls himself an apostle, uh, and he's, he's almost like he's saying, I've been commissioned and sent by God to tell you about the good news of Jesus. Interestingly, he says, I'm set apart. If he was a Pharisee, that means he was, in the past, he was set apart to make sure everyone kept the rules. But now he's saying, I'm set apart for something else. I'm set apart for the good news of Jesus. It's interesting, this word gospel, he didn't invent it. It's not a Bible word. It's not a word that you'd, you'd have um, you've heard Christians using before Paul starts to use it. 
In fact, it was a, a word that the Roman emperors used to use uh, uh, about a proclamation of good news. So if they'd won a victory on the battlefield, there'd be a gospel proclamation. Or if they'd had a baby, um, Vic will have a gospel proclamation when the baby comes, would there be a proclamation of a new king's been born, or a new heir's been born, or the, new, the next emperor's been born, and there'd be a proclamation, a gospel. The word they use actually is a bit like the word we use for evangelist. Evangelon, it means basically a proclamation of good news. And so Paul steals this word from the emperors. And the emperors, in fact, we, if you don't believe me, there's a piece of, uh, here's a, a bit, what's called the Perean inscription. It's, it was found in Greece, Greek on the right. A bit of it says this. It sounds very familiar. It says, A saviour who has put an end to war and will restore order everywhere. Who is this person? They tell you, Caesar. By his appearing, by Caesar's appearing, he's realised the hopes of all who receive the gospel. The birthday of the god Augustus was for the world the beginning of the gospel that he brought. That would go around. That the, 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 the servants and heralds of the empire would go around and say, Augustus is king. Augustus is king. They'd say, actually more than that, they'd say Augustus is God. The Romans weren't very religious, but by the time Paul's writing his letter, they're actually the state cult is saying that the Caesars are God. And they would go and say, Caesar is God, and you would need to respond to that. Caesar is God, your response would be, bow and scrape, otherwise you're going to be a slave, or worse. So that was the proclamations that would go out through the empire, and Paul takes uh, that, those kind of almost the same words and say, I've got a new proclamation, I've got some new good news, and this is what he says, the gospel of God. The gospel he promised that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, scriptures regarding his son. There's an heir, a new son has been born, a new king's been born, there's a, there's a new emperor, there's a new king in town, who according to his flesh was the descendant of King David, and who according to the Holy Spirit was appointed son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. How did Caesar become God? Caesar became God by having masses of Roman legions, I think we've got two pictures here, there's a picture of, yeah, one from Gladiator, uh, one from the Passion of the Christ, but representing. So that on the, on the right-hand side, this is how Caesar became God. Thousands and thousands of legionnaires. He became God by, by trampling upon people, by, by bringing fear and, and, and authority. And he, because of that human power, he said, I'm going to become a God. Paul says, no, there's another God, there's another king in town who is God already but actually has come and humbled himself. He writes about it elsewhere in Philippians. It says, He who is in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, became a human, took on flesh and blood. He said he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. His flesh and blood was torn. Augustus would declare himself God by tearing others' flesh and blood apart. Augustus' soldiers, or Tiberius' soldiers, took the body of Jesus, nailed it to a cross. Paul says, he's died. And that was the end, right? Weak, powerless, a nobody from Palestine. But he rose from the dead. Paul says he's rose from the dead, and God, the Holy Spirit, has declared or appointed him, he is son of God in power. The new king, is now the king of the world 
because he's risen from the dead. And he says emphatically at the end, who is this guy? Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. The Romans were interested in power and status and wealth and sex. They were interested in all the things that we're interested in in our culture. And our culture says, Jesus is not Lord. My health is Lord, or my family's Lord, or my job is Lord, my money's Lord. My ability to do what I want is Lord. I'm not a slave. That's Lord. Paul comes in and says, no, there's a new king in town. And he is Lord. I brought this. It's an amalgamation of two quotes. So uh, there's a guy called Tom Wright and another guy called Phil Moore. And I've blended it together and made a little quote of my own, which is a bit of a naughty. (laughs) Well, I didn't know where one started and one finished, because I kind of said the same thing, so I've kind of blended them together. It's... They both say between them, Paul here is not offering some helpful advice to be followed or some interesting philosophical ideas to be explored or an access to emotional experience that we can have. The gospel is not like an advertisement for a product we might or might not buy. It's more like a command from an authority, a Lord. We would be foolish to resist. A declaration, event that has happened. Paul is declaring an incontestable reality, something that has happened in space, time and history, events through which the world is now a different place. It's about what God has done in Jesus, Israel's true king. Jesus, the world's true Lord. This is right at the minute. It's like Paul comes in to all of this crazy, kind of confused ideas in Rome and in the church in Rome, and he says, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, sorry Romans, not, 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 not laws or rules are Lord. No, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And it's almost, he comes, and he doesn't come begging, saying, will you obey it or not? He says, this is a gospel, this is a declaration. You need to respond. You need to respond. He says in Romans 10, verse 8, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There it is. That's the thing that declares that he is Lord. You will be saved. Paul's declaration is not a vague message. It's for you. He says, and you also have been called. He says, you also. He says, this is a declaration. It's not some vague thing for the world. You also. You. You. Where you're sitting. You also have been called. You've heard this declaration. You've heard it. Jesus is Lord. What are you going to do about it? You also have been called to belong to Christ. Let me just finish with this. This message that Jesus is Lord is going to run right through. This is the good news that there's a new king in town. The one whose body was broken. The one whose blood was shed. to, to, To conquer our greatest enemies, sin and death. And it still changes people's lives. This is what John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, writes in his journal in 1738. John Wesley had been a churchgoer. In fact, more than that, he'd been a missionary. He'd gone from, uh, from the UK to, to the United States to try and convert the, the Native Americans. He tried to convert them. But he writes in his journal in January as he's coming back home, who's going to convert me? He's just going through the religious motions. He's going to church and doing the church things, and he's not ever fat, really bowed the knee and said, Jesus, you're the Lord. He writes this. 
in his journal on the 24th of May. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to the prayer meeting at Howard's house. England were playing in the t- football that evening. But I thought, no, I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> no, it says, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Streets in London where one was reading Martin Luther's preface, Epistle to the Romans. Does anybody know who Martin Luther is? Martin Luther was a, a German monk who read, uh, read Romans and went, wow, this changes everything. And he changed the, uh, the nature of European history from reading this book. John Wesley reads what he wrote, Martin Luther's preface to the Romans, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus. Wonderful words, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It still does that. The gospel still does that. Paul says, I'm a debtor. I'm, 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 I've, I've received this, this, this thing to give away. It's like a, some money that he's been given that's burning a hole in his pocket that he's got to give it away. It, it, it's, it's almost like, uh, I've used this illustration before, Alexander Fleming, the guy who discovered penicillin, made sure he kept it to himself. He said, no, no, this antibiotic can, can change the world. Imagine he slipped it in his pocket and thought, I'm not going to give it to anyone. He says, no, this is, a, this is good news. I can't keep it to myself. This is, this is a cure for a broken and dying world. And when we come and break bread, Paul says this in another letter to, in, to the Corinthians. He said, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, he says, you, does anyone know? It says, you, what's the word? Proclaim. Your gospel, declaration of good news. You proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. So when we come, what I want is, I want you to to understand that you're making this acknowledgement, you're bowing the knee that Jesus is the Lord. Nothing else is in charge. Nothing else takes priority. That you're going to be obedient to him because you've seen who he is. But when you eat it, I want you to see it as like this thing you've got to give away. It's almost as if I'm, <clears throat> I'm coming along and I'm giving, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to give each, give each of you a £20 note and say, right, here's your £20 note. I want you to give it away to someone who's poor. When we take the bread and wine, it's like that God has given us this immeasurable pearl of great price and he's saying, now take it, but you've got to give it away. God first, this has got to be a year where we give the gospel away. This has got to be the year where ordinary people like us believe we can turn a town like Rome upside down. This has got to believe, believe a year that, 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 that actually this message of Romans, this gospel of Jesus can change our lives from the disobedience of unbelief to the obedience of faith. So let's come and let's take and eat of this beautiful Jesus. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.